Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Spent the rest of the week working on my Synology disk station with the surveillance station app installing. Guys, I just have to tell you, this thing is, it's unbelievable to me. It is shocking to me, nothing short of shocking, that this has not garnered more attention. And what I'm finding is, if I go look on the internet that people back in even 2013, 2014, that were using some of these alternative systems, it, it seems like there was a need for a system just like this. And now having had, being able to put my hands on it, and being able to throw some cameras on this thing and actually try it, I can tell you definitively without any equivocations that the Synology Disk Station with Surveillance Station is the best out-of-the-box NVR experience if you are a person that wants to run something on Linux, does not want to deal with complicated licensing things, and does not seem need esoteric features of IP cameras. If you need some basic cameras to keep an eye on your home or business, if you want some pan tilt zoom functionality, if you want to be able to use multiple providers or multiple camera manufacturers, I should say, the Synology Disk Station is the way to go. In fact, I, I guess here's what I would tell you. What I would tell you is that the most accurate way I could explain the way I would describe the Synology Disk Station is it's the Unify system without having to be tied to Unify. The interface is just as slick. There are way more features, and it runs just as reliably, and the price point is about the same. And if you're willing to if you're willing to purchase cheaper cameras, to include even the Unify ones, I might add, because they're not bad cameras, and I actually have four of them in, the, uh, in my Synology Disk Station, and it works fine. If you're looking for something like that, if you're looking for a go-to, no-frill solution, the Synology Disk Station is... I cannot give it a high enough recommendation. I'm just very, very happy with it. And so the first thing that struck me about Synology when I when I started it up, and I've used Synologies before for NASes, I tend to prefer FreeNAS, but my gosh, these people have their web UI down to a pat. It feels like you're on a desktop. It feels like you're using a desktop operating system. You have icons that show up on against uh, what looks like a background. You have a user account. You have a menu for a launcher. It feels like a mini little Linux desktop. And so I pulled the, and the, the way that you actually provision the box in and of itself, is, I think is really interesting. The box, when you pull it out and you turn it on and you install the disks in it, it says, well, you have to install what Synology calls the DSM or the disk station manager software. And essentially what it does is it installs uh, the operating system onto the disks for you in a little guided wizard. So you just put the disk, you just put the, your hard drives in and click on the button and just wait. And five minutes later, it installs the Synology operating system onto those disks that you provided. So right off the bat, we're starting out on a really good foot because I got input onto what disks I put into this machine. Now, if I was using it for NAS purposes, I would have went with Western Digital WD Reds. In this case, I went for WD Purples and surveillance drives because that's what I'm doing. 
the fact that I get a choice in that, it really shows that Synology gets it. Um, they are thinking of problems and solving them before I have ever had an opportunity to. So I log into the web interface, and what most of you that do similar things like me, if you're doing consulting, one of the things that you don't have a lot of patience for is I don't want to figure out your system. I just want to use it. I just want I want to get it ready to go. In my in a perfect world, I would enter in my my the IP address I want to use, my username, and my password, and then I could just start playing with it. And I'll go back and tweak all the other stuff later. Well, Synology does a great job with that because you open the Applications Manager, you find Surveillance Station, you click Install, and five minutes later, you have a, a full-fledged enterprise-grade NVR. You open that application, which, by the way, can run as a standalone application. So instead of having to log into the DSM software where you have all of, you know, they have the ability to install other applications and you have the ability to change the configuration of the disk manager and stuff like that, it allows you to run Surveillance Station as a separate app. And so you get a separate URL that I was able to give family members and other people that I wanted to be able to play with it. And you're able to log directly into Surveillance Station. So when you log into Surveillance Station, you're greeted with a UI that has... Uh, the live view, so you can see your cameras, which is a natural thing to want to do, I suppose, if you install an NVR. And then below that is a timeline. And this is something that Unify had experimented with in a, in a beta feature. They probably have perfected it with their protect system, their closed architecture protect system that doesn't work with anything else, and you can't run it on your own hardware, that one. Uh, and you don't get any choice in the matter, and it's limited into how many cameras you can use. So if you go that route... They have the timeline there, but what the timeline allows you to do is overlay a day, hours and minutes in a day, and then you can drag a cursor back and forth and see where events happened in your camera system. I find that to be remarkably useful because when I want to find out if a package has been delivered, I just look and say, well, I left the house at noon, you know, when I, when I came home for lunch and I went back to the office at, you know, one and the package was there at three when I got home. So it must've come between one and three and i can just look at that spot sure enough find the little green mark that indicates that there was motion click on it and i can watch that video clip fantastic the other thing they do the auto configuration wizard is one of the best auto configuration wizards i've ever used when you log into this thing and click on a particular camera model it pretty much immediately picks up the make and model of the camera in my case i was using access cameras and so it auto provisioned everything for me all I had to do was provide credential details. But when I was going to do the Unify cameras, they let you choose just ONVIF standard camera or just user-defined camera, and I'll just enter in all of the details. And if you're doing that, then you have the ability to run uh, any camera, uh, any RTSP camera, any RTMP camera. The other thing that they let you do for adding cameras that I thought this is really, really brilliant and is certainly going to come in use at some point with some client there is an app called DS Camera, and the app DS Camera is what you install on your Android or iOS device to connect into the Synology surveillance station. Now, there is a second camera called Synology Live Cam, and as you might expect, Synology Live Cam is an app that registers your phone's camera as an IP camera on the Synology surveillance station. So I can take spare Android devices, install this one single app, and now I have the ability to use that phone as a stand-in camera anywhere. And the thing that's particularly advantageous that, from my perspective, is there are so many times when we're having a Christmas dinner or we're having a Thanksgiving get-together, and I need to keep an eye on something. The first night I got it, I was cooking upstairs, and I wanted to keep an eye on the timer. And I, you know, it's hard to hear when if I'm downstairs in my lab, and I 
took out a spare phone, <laughs> fired up the live cam app, just set it up on a little stand facing the kitchen timer, went downstairs and went, this is great. In 30 seconds, I just added a camera to my system and I'm able to keep an eye on something I wouldn't have been able to keep an eye on. It didn't cost me anything because it was just a spare, uh, a spare Android phone laying around. And they give you the, the, um, the app for free. Like, this is a great way to build a camera system. And so if you wanted to get into IP cameras and you got a bunch of spare Android phones laying around, but you don't have a few thousand dollars to buy access IP cameras, well, hey, this might be an option for you. 855-450. No, it's 1-855-450-6624. The email, of course, live at com. That is the way you make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. John joins us from Texas. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, Noah. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? Good, man. How can I help? Good, good. Uh, I think this is the third time I've called this year, and I just want to say uh, I appreciate your show and you've uh, teaching us a lot of good, good things in the technology field. We appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate your support. Um, yeah, just kind of a question maybe to um, on the NAS storage technology, I'm looking for something like a, because I'm used to um, syncing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like you copy like a bunch of computers and it'll sync to a database server and it'll automatically copy and duplicate it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any suggestion on what mass storage or something that I can use uh, so I can uh, upload that app? Yes. Um, so we're talking about Synology primarily because I was using them as a disk station. Now, I have to be honest with you. I think this, from what I've experienced with the disk, disk station, if you chose to buy a Synology and use it as a NAS, you'd probably be more than pleased. I can tell in the, in the few days that I've been using this product, this company gets it. They know what users want. They know what users care about. They, they pay attention to the little details, and they make sure there aren't any paper cuts. So I have nothing against the Synology disk station if you want to use it as a NAS. That said... I think there are better choices. I don't. I don't care how. Right. I don't like uh, Terramasters and other brands that I've been looking into too. But I'm not really sure about it. You're exactly right, John. There are and so it, there's there are other competing brands. But when we start to take off the when you t- start to look under the hood and you look at what's underneath the hood, that really starts to give us an idea of what our experience on those devices are going to be like, right? And so let me let me explain. If on the on the Synology, their default file system is ButterFS, and if you're not familiar if you're not familiar with ButterFS, it's a file system that has a a, a fairly turbulent turbulent history, and it, it's not one that I'm real fond of. Now they give you the option of using ZFS. Right. ZFS is what I prefer. Yes, me yeah. too. Because ZFS. So the other option in the Synology is EXT4, which is a better choice in my opinion than ButterFS, but. It's still not. It's still not a file system that's really designed um, to handle some of the challenges that we have in in life in 2019. I mean, the, the the advantage of GFS is it has been tested at massive scale. When you have large organizations that are deploying massive, massive clusters of servers, that's what they're using. They're using ZFS, and um, and and so or Ceph cluster. That's, that's what I'm using. Uh, that's, that's what I'm using at home to back up uh, the client database. What are you running? What are you running ZFS on? Believe it or not, I love using Linux uh, Mint. Okay, all right, that's a great way to go. Linux Mint, and I'm just yeah, I'm just doing everything. I'm just coding it, um, hard coding it. So, John, if you wanted to, what you could do is you could install SyncThing on that Linux Mint box or, or set up a similar box, and that would totally get you there. If you were looking for a pull-it-out-of-the-box-and-just-use-it kind of a thing, I would suggest looking at FreeNAS. Are you familiar with FreeNAS? Oh, FreeNAS, yeah. I've looked into it. 
But I think they've gotten better since I dealt with three nasty. Yeah, but I think that because there's so much things to do on that three nas, it's mm-hmm. really gooey part. I I just like a simple, you know, mast or is a Linux Minor or Ubuntu, and one of those two is is, is really good. So I'll, I'll, let me let me. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a piece. So here's here's where I here's how I would break that down for you a little bit. So as far as FreeNAS goes, if you want the least amount of steps to getting a file server up and running with SyncThing, I promise you there is no shorter path than 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 uh, FreeNAS. And here's why: you will download the ISO. You will write the ISO to a flash drive. If you've installed any Linux distro, that is second nature to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, you plug the flash drive in, you install free, you have at least two drives in the box, one that you're going to store your data on, one that FreeNAS is going to reside on, and you install FreeNAS to the drive that you that FreeNAS is going to reside on. By the way, if you say to yourself, self, I don't want to spend an extra hundred and some dollars on a hard drive for FreeNAS to reside on, I would tell you you can install it right to a compact flash card. If you say to yourself, how am I going to attach a compact flash card inside of my computer, I would tell you that there are small little SATA adapters you can buy for 15 bucks on Amazon. You can put a compact flash card in there. And by the way, this is how the FreeNAS Mini works. They have a small little... Uh, uh, a small little drive, flash memory drive that that sits inside of the box, and it and it boots off of the the actual branded device that IX System sells. Once you're done with that, and you run through the install, which is essentially if you know your name and what drive you want to install it to, that's enough. Um, the FreeNAS box will boot up. It'll if it, if you have DHCP, it'll just take a DHCP address. If you want a static assign statically assign it an IP address, you're welcome to do so. And now you have a running FreeNAS box. That's it. Um, as far as setting up actual storage you'll go through there's a little wizard and it will walk you through creating a pool and so just click next a bunch of times if you don't have any preferences if you do have preference like what zfs array you want to build you're welcome to do that and then as far as getting sync thing to run click on the plugins tab click on sync thing and uh and click install and that's it and i and and in and is there a way to install that on linux mint absolutely is it any less reliable if it's running on linux than on on freenas no not at all it it ZFS is perfectly, in my opinion, perfectly ready for production on Linux. People are using it. There's no problem with it. Uh, are there guides to install SyncThing on the same box that you have ZFS running on? Absolutely. Uh, so you're, if you are more comfortable doing that way, I would cu- encourage you to do it that way. But if you're saying to yourself, what's the shortest, easiest path to getting SyncThing up and running on a box with ZFS, I I strongly, strongly implore you to consider IX, uh, uh, IX Systems uh, FreeNAS. Yeah, I think I should uh, download and check it out. And yeah, I heard they they gotten better. Yeah, give that a shot, John. Uh, and I. No. Oh, good. Yeah, one one more quick question, sir. Um, I've seen a lot of these Chromebooks, uh, mm-hmm. Center, the Acer, they're only like hundred and sixty bucks. I was thinking of converting that into like I want to install Linux Mint on it. <laughs> it's a great idea. The price is right. I mean, mm-hmm. Can I do it, though? Absolutely. So here's the only thing. Here's the only thing to be aware of when you're installing Linux on a Chromebook. The Chromebook hardware is heavily subsidized by the manufacturer, as is the stream computers from Microsoft. They call it a different thing, but it's basically a low-powered laptop that the software manufacturer subsidizes for the purpose of trying to get more people to buy them. And you're right; it's a great deal. It's a fantastic deal. Um, the thing to be aware of is that in order to prevent or at least inhibit people from installing other operating systems on it, what they've done 
is there is a right protect screw and it's a little screw that they put in and essentially what it does is it prevents the computer from ever permanently switching off a flag that checks for the security signature of the operating system in which it was installed. So, for example, on a Chromebook, every time you turn the computer on by default, it looks for code signed by Google. And if it sees it, then it boots it. If it doesn't see it, then it gives a scary warning message. Now, you can shut off the ability to check for that signature inside of the Chromebook, and it's a fairly straightforward procedure. I can link a guide in the show notes for you. Um, that's a fairly straightforward procedure, but here's where here's where this can kind of bite you if you're not careful. Because that if you don't remove that right protect screw, which by the way I've never done, I've just I've just dealt with this problem. If you don't remove the right protect screw, that flag will never permanently be set off. If the battery ever dies, the flag to check for the Google Chrome operating system will be defaulted to back on, and you'll only be able to boot Chrome OS. So here's where that bites people. You wipe off your Chromebook and you put Linux on it and you follow the guide to go into developer mode and you turn off that flag and you reboot. It gives you the scary message. You say you don't care. You plug a flash drive in. You install Linux Mint. Everything's great. Probably going to work right out of the box for you because, hey, after all, uh, Google Chrome is essentially just Gentoo. So all the drivers are going to be inside the kernel. You'll probably work just out of the box and you're going to use it for a couple of months and everything will be fine. And then one day. You're going to run your battery out at your office, and you're going to shut it, and then you're going to leave it in your car all night, and then it's going to be the weekend, and four days later, you're going to come back to get your computer, and you're going to turn it on, and your operating system is still there. All the files are still there. Everything is still there, but that Chromebook, when it turns on, goes, oh, my battery died. What was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to? Oh, that's right. Anyway, I'm supposed to default to check to check in the signature because I don't remember if I was or wasn't. And that's my default is to check for the signature. Oh, this off thing isn't signed. I can't boot that. All right. Well, sorry, can't boot it. And then your only option at that point, because you can't get back into Chrome OS to turn that flag back off and you can't boot your operating system. So your only choice at that point then is to boot into a Chrome OS installer, wipe your laptop clean with Chrome OS, an operating system that you don't want, then turn that flag back off, then reboot and reinstall your operating system, having lost all your data. So if you can live with that, if you can live with that caveat don't let the battery die all the way and when i say all the way i don't mean like five percent three percent i mean like dead as a doorknob dead if you yeah yeah, if you can avoid doing that you'll be fine if that scares you find a chromebook that has a right protect screw that's easy to remove and take the right protect screw out change the flag put the right protect screw back in and then you're solid then it won't matter if the battery dies if you can live with that compromise if you can live with that caveat chromebook is a great way to go i bought the pixel one at first google pixel when it came out one of the best laptops i've ever owned Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, Noah. Thank you. Uh, happy holidays, sir. Hey, you Take too, care. John. Thanks for calling. We really appreciate your call. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 6624 The email, com. So back to the Synology disk station or surveillance station. The interface, again, I don't have enough good things to say about it because it is so incredibly intuitive. The other thing is it's remarkably responsive. There were some things that I was using ZoneMinder and I was using Blue Cherry. I would go to do something that just felt like I should be able to do it and it just didn't respond. I'll give you an example. If I'm looking at a crosshatch view, if I'm looking at a multiplexed view of four cameras and they're all in their own individual squares and I double click on one, I expect that camera to, to go full screen and that just didn't happen. And on the Synology, if I, you know, if I scroll, it zooms. If I double click on it, it, it makes it full screen. There's obviously the PTZ functions and all of that. Um, it's just a really great system. So if you're looking for a go-to security system, uh, camera system, I can't recognize, I can't recommend the Synology, uh, 
enough. And again, some people had asked the exact model that I bought. I bought the DS718 Plus. My understanding is it will support up to 32 cameras. I am planned, I plan to try to do that. The only issue um, is with Synology and the what the cost is going to be relates to the camera licensing because one of the things that Synology does is they charge you a $50 per per camera license, one-time fee, transferable to any box. So if it breaks, you can move the license over to the other one. My understanding is you can also, if you decided you had two NVRs and you wanted to consolidate the license, you're welcome to do that. They don't seem like they put any like massive limitations on it, but you just it's just something you want to be aware of. So keep that in mind. Microsoft Teams is now available on Linux. Companies have Teams, DevOps, etc., and they are trying to target the Linux desktop. Now, this is an interesting decision by Microsoft and one that I'm particularly thankful for because I think it sends a message. And the message is this. Hey, we understand that there are certain members of certain teams that their job responsibilities require them to use Linux. Now, it's not everybody. Most of the people in any given organization are probably still going to use Microsoft Windows, but some people, if they're doing development style or they're doing application development or whatever, it makes more sense for them to be using Linux. And so if we are going to make a software that is going to be team collaboration software, then that software has to run on Linux, or those developers and those people that are working at that company are probably going to switch something to something like Slack. Because they need the lowest common denominator. They need the thing that runs on everything. And so from that perspective, I think this is a really good idea. And I think it's a really good idea because what it's going to force is other companies are going to have to start treating the Linux desktop as a player in the market. They don't have to necessarily accept that Linux has taken over the desktop. They don't have to necessarily accept that everybody and most businesses are going to use Linux or that's the future. They don't have to accept any of that. But they have to accept the fact that Linux now has a dominant place in mainstream workflows from a development standpoint. And I think this is the first real sign that we've seen. Actually, it's not. It's, it's really a continuation of signs that we've seen that there are people that work in business that are sick and tired of trying to hack around Windows, and they're just going to exist on Linux. And so when Zoom comes out with team meeting software, they make a client for Linux. When Slack comes out with team meeting software, they make it available for Linux. And now Microsoft, a company who owns Windows, makes their team software available for uh, Linux. And it's not just a a hacked-together Electron port. Microsoft is doing everything their own way. They're not using GTK. They're not using QT. And, you know, it has ups ups and downs, right? So the downside is it looks terrible on KDE. The the title bars are huge. um, And it also has the Windows 10-style buttons instead of using your own desktop naming. And so that's unfortunate. However... Consider the fact that because Microsoft is producing a product specifically for all operating systems, they're making it cross-platform and they're making it available for everybody, even on Linux. It means that people that are coming over from Windows 10 are going to feel right at home. I hired another guy uh, either this week or last week, and I was having a conversation with him and he formerly did a lot of work on Windows. And so we got his Linux machine set up and he was kind of looking around and he eventually decided he wanted to go over to KDE and I asked him why. And he said, because he thought that it was easier for him to customize the appearance of it. And he got done customizing the appearance, quote unquote, and I went and looked at it. And sure enough, he made it look as much like Windows 10 as he possibly could. And it's just because that's what he's comfortable with. And so when you have an application that people get used to on Windows, like Microsoft Teams, for example, and now all of a sudden they have the opportunity to use that software on another platform, 
making that experience consistent is very important and very useful. And so I really commend Microsoft for taking the time to do this. Again, it's not one of those things that I'm going to up and change my mind and say, oh, all of a sudden Microsoft loves Linux. This is clear. They, they ported a single application. I, but it's one, more, it's one more ball in the cog that Windows is not going to continue to be as prevalent as it has been in the past. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't believe that Windows is ever going to be replaced by Linux. But I submit to you, the world is a changing from tech radar headline china to ditch all windows pcs by 2022 the u.s government has expanded its blacklist by adding a number of chinese top ai startups including several firms which specialize in facial recognition in total 20 chinese public security bureaus and eight companies including the including the video surveillance firm hike vision and facial recognition firms sense time and megavi have been added to the U.S. black site. So to recap for just for those of you who maybe didn't catch the episode two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whenever we talked about IP, right? maybe it was last week. Hike Vision is a company that is owned by the Chinese government, essentially. Um, the Chinese government sponsors that particular company to make cameras for the Chinese government for doing mass surveillance. And the U.S., in response to uh, human rights violations, I guess, in China have decided that they are going to blacklist certain Chinese manufacturers. Hike Vision was among that list. And so if last week anybody thought that I was wearing too far off my tinfoil hat, this is now making its way around other news organizations. The ongoing trade war between China and the U.S. has already lasted 15 months, but U.S. officials have said that adding Chinese AI startups and facial recognition firms to the entity list not only tied to the resumption of trade talks between those two companies. These entities have been implicated in human rights violations and abuses in the implication of Chinese campaign and repression, mass arbitrary detention and high technology surveillance against. And then they list a whole bunch of groups that uh, were, have been, uh, have been targeted. But the important part here is this, as the United States continues to seg- to, to distance itself from China and distance its, uh, ability China's ability to access American technology and American technology companies what you have to understand that China in its own rational self-preservation is going to turn somewhere else to fulfill those technical needs now we know that China can manufacture the technology what China needs is the software to put on the technology and if you don't have a large budget to design Microsoft Windows from the ground up where do you think the next place they're going to look is because they already have a Chinese distribution available And my speculation is, now this is not confirmed, but my speculation is that they are going to move to some sort of Linux operating system because they basically have two choices. Choice A, they take what they know about Windows and they go hire some of the people that have been pirating Windows and been, you know, um, you know, making mock copies of Windows, fake forgery copies of Windows, and just kind of legitimize those, kind of hash it out and and find something that can execute PL code and find a way to kind of get a Windows-esque operating system that is owned by the Chinese government. That's option A. And that requires a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of software engineers, a lot of intelligence, a lot of resources, and also you're going to wind up with this weird one-off operating system that nothing else is designed to run on. So that's option one. Option A, nonetheless. Option B, you adopt a fully enterprise-ready operating system that the code is open and so you don't have to worry about the United States government doing whatever it is they're worried about the United States government doing. You can use it for what basically whatever purpose you want to use it for. 
there's already a wide list of applications that are available on Linux, and they have the ability to fork the source code and make it exactly what they want. Methinks that's probably the direction the Chinese government is going. The Chinese government services have ordered to, to replace 30% of their Windows PCs by the end of 2020, a further 50% in 2021, and the final 20% by the end of 2022. So this is a, this is a fast uh, this is a fast-paced approach. We're talking of replacing all of these machines in the next two years, essentially. And on paper, this seems like good news for Linux. But a lot of critics are saying that any operating system the Chinese government uses is going to be heavily regulated, it's going to be heavily censored, and it's basically going to be the antithesis of the Linux that we have created with the open source model in mind. I don't agree. I think it's possible that China would develop a distribution and fork it and make it their own and then just totally shut out all of the open source developers. But consider this. There's no real inherent advantage in doing that. I mean, I can understand if they wanted to incorporate some sort of spyware, but that can be added on top. That doesn't necessarily have to rewrite the entire code base from the ground up if they just want to incorporate some censorship and some surveillance. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that I think that's a good thing to do, a bad thing to do. I'm not taking a stance. I'm just saying that from a purely technical standpoint, it's not necessary to maintain your own distribution just to have some monitoring and some censorship, right? We do it all the time here in the U.S. We just call it uh, things like content filtering and remote managed services. But essentially, it's, it's censorship and uh, and surveillance. That's what it is. Um, so where I get to is... When stuff like this happens, other companies have to pivot to support Linux, because if I'm right, and I think that I am, that the government would rather take an existing working project and tweak it to their liking than start over from the ground up, then that forces other companies, companies like Slack, companies like Microsoft, companies like Zoom, you know, anybody that is a Discord, Telegram, all these companies that manufacture software that are prime, that they don't, they're, they're operating system agnostic. They don't care who it is they're making software for. They just want somebody to use their product. They want people to buy their stuff. And so if that's your goal and you now have 1.3 billion people on the planet that are potential customers for you, guess what you're probably going to support? You're probably going to at least make a haphazard effort to try to support Linux because that's what an entire country with one of the world's largest populations is using as their operating system. The other thing, and I have this article linked for you in the show notes. Now, this is an article uh, from InfoWorld, and the article is titled, Who Really Contributes to Open Source? Do you know who contributes to open source? A lot of Chinese companies that have long been perceived as just consumers of open source, they contribute a lot. They contribute a ton. They're actual good community members. So I think it's important, if we believe what it is we say we believe, that Linux is open source, that Linux is for everybody, that it comes with freedom, maximum absence of coercion, and it's not our job to tell people why and what they can use open source code for. It's their job to decide that, and we can condemn them for doing bad things with good code. If that's the position that we're willing to take, and it's certainly the position that I take, then this is a great, great move for Linux. It's a great move because it t makes China independent from the United States, from independent from United States software companies. It separates them from the Apple, the Microsofts of the world, and allows them to 
own their own infrastructure and their own operating system, even if their desire is to do something that I don't think is a good idea. And if history is to be believed and any of and this information from InfoWorld, the article that we're going to link in the show notes, if that information is to be believed, then history sends a clear message to us that even when repressive governments use open source software, we as the open as the consumer of open source software still get something in return. And I think that's pretty exciting. I'm pretty happy to see that. So we'll continue to keep our eye on that. Obviously, like I said, I don't want to mislead anybody. Nothing I have read indicates that they have actually chosen to go with Linux. They're just cho- choosing to abandon Microsoft Windows. So for all we know, they could, you know, go to Mac OS or they could go to BSD or they could, like I say, they could just write a clone of Windows. I just don't think that's the most logical next step. Two bit in the chat room says they might move to Red Star Linux. And they wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft rebased on the Linux kernel at some point. That was uh, NSP. In fact, we've talked about that a little bit. I actually agree with that wholeheartedly. I think there's a lot of advantages in Microsoft rebasing to the Linux kernel at some point. I think there's a lot of wisdom in Microsoft concentrating on cloud services and letting the desktop operating system itself be handled by those who actually want to maintain it day to day. WireGuard being released in Linux kernel 5.6. With Linux 5.5, the crypto subsystem was adopted in many elements of WireGuard's Zinc crypto code. And that in turn opened the door for merging WireGuard in the now cryptography side have been sorted out. Now, WireGuard lead developer Jason Donafield sent out on Sunday night the NetNext V2 WireGuard patch. Latest WireGuard revision will hopefully be reviewed and quickly land in NetNext for a more, more widespread testing by upstream network developers prior to the Linux 5.6 introduction. The new WireGuard revision simply adapts the Linux 5.5 API changes and another minor code tweak, while most of the nearly 8,000 lines of kernel code to WireGuard remain the same. Now, I want to stop right there and I want to point something out because this is one of the things that really makes me excited about WireGuard. One of the things that I care most about, especially as of late in open source and Linux, is the fact that it is a more privacy respecting operating system and it's privacy respecting code. And of course, to be privacy respecting, it needs to be secure. In order for it to be secure, it needs to be audited. In order for it to be audited, eyes have to be on the code. And so 8,000 lines may sound like a lot if you're not a developer, but let me put that into perspective for you. OpenVPN has 70,000 lines of code. OpenVPN, my number one recommendation, and that stands through this week, my number one recommendation for VPN software, if, you have, if you're not considering anything else, you just know you need a VPN, go by default with OpenVPN unless you have a reason not to. That advice stands true today. 70,000 lines of code. Imagine how much more difficult it is to find a fault in 70,000 lines of code versus 8,000. WireGuard is absolutely the future of VPN technology. I can't tell you exactly how all of that's going to play out because we have a lot of work to do ahead of us as relating to building infrastructure and authentication and control and all of those mechanisms. We also have some work to do about logging. But at the end of the day, if I was to trust something, the fact that it's only 8,000 lines of code and that people are reviewing it and looking at it, Linus himself has reviewed or at least kind of tangentially looked at WireGuard and is very happy with it. In fact, Dos Geek points it out in the chat room that he has very high praise from Linus Torvalds. That makes me very excited for a kernel module that allows you to do WireGuard. Now, if you want to know more, you can go check out last week's episode and, or excuse me, the week before 
last week. I don't know. I'll have it linked in the show notes. We have a, we did an episode on VPN technology. You can check that out. In, it, in, in that episode, we also have a link to our WireGuard tutorial because it takes you less than 10 minutes to set WireGuard up. If you have ever set up an SSH key system, you've generated a set of H, SSH. If you have generated a set of SSH keys and uploaded one to a server and used the private key to connect, you have all the skills you need to get WireGuard up and running. Now, as you might expect with any new VPN technology, particularly VPN technology that is exciting to people, everybody wants to be first on the bandwagon. When WireGuard first came out, we did a tutorial on it. I set it up and I started using it to connect into my house because I was excited about the fact that it was so easy now to get VPN technology up and running. And instead of taking 20 or 30 minutes to get a VPN system up, now I can do it in about 15 seconds. I thought that was pretty cool. And so I started using it. Well, guess who else started using it? VPN companies. VPN companies have popped up all over the place trying to find uh, their own little niche. In fact, a bunch of them, we didn't include it in, 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 the, uh, in the news lineup this week, but a bunch of them have actually gone under because, uh, and they, they, they see them as exit scams. And a lot of organizations have decided that they are going to use WireGuard to allow people to connect into their VPN services. And while they think that's great, there have been some concerns about privacy. We'll get into that next. But Devin, is it Davin, from New York, calls. Hi, Devin. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Good evening. How are you? Excellent, sir. How are you? I'm tired. Just came from work. But, you know, had to make it for the show. I hear you, man. Um, I had a question for you. First thing was, how are you enjoying the Pinebook Pro? Haven't gotten it yet. I, I ordered mine uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it hasn't shown up yet. And I, I've seen that I, I went to actually kind of check on my order and I uh, couldn't find any more information about it. So I'll just have to sit tight and be patient. But believe me, you'll hear about it when it comes out because I'm excited to play with that thing. Okay, good. Um, it's not bad. I actually got mine. A um, couple glitches here and there, but a uh, good company, very responsive. So... Hopefully, I get to hear a review of that uh, one of your podcasts or Destination Linux. What uh, what uh, what keyboard did you um, get? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, unfortunately, I got the. I think it was the, is the Anti the 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 European version. Uh. The uh, European one. Okay. Uh, I actually don't even know that. I yeah. Sorry, that part I'm not too knowledgeable on. Um, it's a little difficult getting used to. I'm not going to lie, because the Anti key is so small. So when I when I press enter, it doesn't. I'm just not used to it, muscle memory. Another thing sure. I have as well, too, is that if I do um, Control-Alt and F1 to get to like this plain terminal yep. or command line, you'll actually see when you get it, uh, I mean, if you get the same version that I have, uh, some of the keys, actually, because the, the pipe command, uh, the, the pipe, uh, I guess, character, mm-hmm. is next to shift on the left side of the keyboard. When I'm in strictly command line, no GUI at all, if I press that same keyboard uh, character, it, it registers the greater than and less than signs. I have to go. Huh. It's weird because it's not labeled correctly when you actually go into the command, the terminal, like using, you know, Control-Alt-F1. Hmm. It's, it's interesting, but it's not bad, though. Couple yeah, pieces, I, but uh, I still like it. I'm I'm excited to play with that. I also ordered the um, I also ordered the PinePhone Braveheart edition. So I'm excited to get both of oh, those things God. and kind of put them through their pace. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna put uh, I think I'm gonna put Selfish OS on it. Yeah, I think we're doing the same too, but I'm gonna wait. I'm not gonna get a Braveheart because I'm not that in tune with technology enough to really play around with it like that. But I am looking forward to when it's fully developed and out of its uh, beta. So. Um, uh, my next question as well, I remember, I 
think you had mentioned this in a previous podcast. Not sure if it was Ask Nowhere or Destination Linux, but it was about Brave, uh, the Brave browser. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is your take? I'm not sure if you said that you're not a, just because I'm not a big Google fan because they're um, very privacy invasive. So would you say that Brave Browser, although it is based on Chromium and is open source, do you still have any doubts in it because it has that software built into it? No, I'm taking my, – my thought on Brave is this. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. We all say that we don't want ads and we don't want people tracking us and all of that kind of stuff. I am okay with that, and I, and I, I like that idea, but we we have to be realistic the those companies need to be paid for the content that they're putting up so somehow we have to get them reimbursed and the idea behind brave is they have their own payment model so it just takes money out and you actually give money to the site to thank them for their content mhm okay so oh, the issue is like that it's throwing uh because you know ads are what generates the the revenue for these sites and stuff like that so the fact that they're getting rid of that implementing their own way of giving money is that the part that you don't necessarily like or is the, you don't like them not that you don't like them. i am nervous anytime that there is a company that says we're going to do it our way and it's not an it's not an open standard per se i see okay okay i've always thought about that i've always wanted to ask you um but okay, yeah, I don't want to take too much of your time because the the segment that you're getting into sounded interesting. So thank you for taking my phone call, and I hope you do get that Pine Book Pro soon. I know that weight can be tedious sometimes, especially limited information. So do your thing, man. I appreciate the work. Absolutely. Thanks for the call. I really appreciate it. 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email. Uh Live at asknoahshow dot com. So, I, is there if there's anybody in in Mumble that can pull uh, that can pull Jeff in? That's great. I, I kind of want to chat with them. Otherwise, uh, maybe uh, Jeff and I can just jump into um, into. I, I don't think I can talk to him here, uh, but if if you can find some way to get into the uh, in the honor room, I'd, I'd love to love love to have a chat with Jeff. Basically, what happened was last week I had said that I wasn't I didn't really understand. Um, why who the who the target user for somebody who wanted to use ubuntu touch on a raspberry pi was and jeff reached out to me and said hey um i'm that guy and i said well why don't you come on the show and tell me why yeah jeff give me a call 855-450 no it's 1-855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com i would love to i'd love to have that conversation uh, with you jeff but so many vpns have expressed concerns about Privacy. Many VPN users have expressed concerns about privacy because of WireGuard. WireGuard, just for the record, uses a lock and key mechanism for authentication, which means that if you're connecting via WireGuard, the server never really knows, uh, this, or the server does know, excuse me, that you're connecting uh, and traffic is being routed through that key, which in practicality makes it no better or worse for privacy than any other VPN protocol because all VPN protocols involve authentication of some description, which can produce some sort of logs. So there is no such thing as a VPN unless you're talking about Tor, and Tor is not a VPN, that guarantees no tracking. And the only thing stopping your VPN provider from tracking what you do is their privacy policy, which is just a piece of paper that they can choose to ignore, they can choose to comply with. So there is no inherent logging functionality that is going to force people um, you know, to not 
to not be able to uh, to 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 violate their logging policies. It's just kind of what your VPN provider decides to do. Jeff, are you with me? Yes, I am. How you doing? Hey, pretty good. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So, Jeff, uh, Jeff is a good friend of mine. We meet up uh, every year at Linux Fest Northwest. And uh, Jeff, you said you are the guy that is the target user of uh, Ubi ports on a Raspberry Pi. Why would somebody want to run a mobile phone operating system on an ARM chip computer? Well, that's exactly it. Uh, touch interface. That's huge. Um, for my car specifically, that's my project I've been working on for a couple of years. I want a computer in my car. I want a good touch interface in my car. And that's that would be, it would be ideal. I mean, UV ports would be just absolutely ideal. I've actually ran the uh, UV ports or a bunch of phone music app um, on top of a bunch of Mate in the past, and, and it worked out pretty well. But uh, some issues came about, and I've been, I've been playing with this project for a long time. But there's all sorts of things that would work great for, uh, for a touch interface. And, well, UV ports have that nailed. I mean, you can't get that on a, on a regular desktop, at least nothing that runs on Pi well. So if you're looking for a if you're looking for some sort of embedded appliance that you want to use for a touchscreen, be a car computer, or maybe you want to put some in your house so that you can control your volumio box or your home automation, or maybe you want like some sort of a troubleshooting tablet that you're taking along. If you want any of those kinds of things, uh, UbiPorts is a way that you can get a real life Linux desktop distribution to run on the kind of modern hardware, smartphone-style hardware and that, that we're used to. And then if you want to take it one step further and you want to start building your own, you know, you want, to, you want to choose the size of the display and you want to choose the kind of input that it has. Now you're saying, hey, why not just use Ubi ports on a Pi and now I get to specify both the hardware and the software. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? It'd be fantastic. Just all of those things you mentioned and, and many, many more. I mean, for, for me, it's the car thing, but... Yeah, <laughs> so many things could, could utilize a good touch interface. Well, I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention, Jeff, because it's one of those things where I just didn't get it. And after having a conversation with you, I think I do get it. And uh, I am going to, I'm probably going to, uh, I'm either going to put Sailfish OS on my, on my, uh, on my Pine phone, or I'm going to put Uba ports. I haven't quite figured it out, but one way or the other, I think I'm going to have to give Uba ports another, Ubi ports another spin. Yeah, definitely. It's extremely smooth and, and just very well polished. Um, I've been playing with Stellfish on my OnePlus One, which is what I play with UV ports on as well. And it's it's pretty great. Uh, UV ports is, at least that spins particularly, is uh, is quite a bit more polished. And when it comes to Stellfish for the Pi, well, good luck. It's a yeah. dead fish in the water, pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, Jeff, well, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Yep, 855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. Job, Arkansas, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah, how are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So um, basically what I was calling about, I said something to you this morning. Uh, it was on the Telegram group. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and having messed with the IP cameras for a little while, <clears throat> I understand where you're coming from with the access, but, I mean... I just went through and from my work purchased uh, a setup from Real Link, and um, then I've seen the Amcrest and Dahlia, or however you pronounce it. Yeah. I know you were having trouble with it as well. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, those are, so like the Amcrest, we'll just say that, mm -hmm. that one was a 4K camera, 
that was about $120 that came with audio recording, everything that you talked yep. about, the RTSP, the SD card, and all that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I'm just kind of having trouble understanding. I would have a hard time suggesting that to somebody when, um, you know, one camera is $300 and I can go off and get two cameras to cover more. Mm-hmm. And from the security side, I understand, um, you know, the Chinese spying on, but I mean, uh, for a camera, for the most part, you're going to want to put that behind, you're not going to have that out in front of a firewall anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I, so, I, so here's, I guess here, I'm not really understanding. Sure. Go ahead. Sure. Well, maybe I can explain my position and then maybe it'll make more sense or maybe you'll convince me. But my position is this. <laughs> if, if the, if, if you put it on a separate, if you put it on an entirely separate network, we agree. If there's no way to get packets out, that's fine. However, at that point where you have these things entirely segregated uh, from any sort of internet access, it starts to remove the functionality that people come to expect with IP cameras in 2019. And so, and if I connect it to the internet, even if I have a firewall in place, remember, if the cameras can talk out, the way that UDP works is those cameras, in theory, can talk out, go back, call home to a server, and that server can broker a connection back into the network. Um, and we do that. And I, the, the reason that I that that scenario plays out in my mind is because it's what I do every single day with Simple Help. We inst- we we have customers that have all sorts of firewalls and protections in place that prevent them from getting on to various things, and we tell them, here, just install this client because I know that will punch a hole through your firewall and. I'll be able to remote into your computer. And so it, it's not speculation that the Chinese government has been caught, or Hikvision specifically, was caught with uh, you know doing some very unscrupulous things in, in their code. I can put some links to those articles for you. But, the, uh, but, right. but where, where we get to is, like, it, do you trust those things on your network or you don't? And the fact that there are hospitals and government agencies that are saying, no, they can't go on our network because we know there are security problems with them, it makes me ask the question, why is it I can get you know eight 4K cameras from Armcrest for seven hundred twenty nine dollars, and it includes a DVR and the two terabyte hard drive? Why is that so cheap? Who is so interested in me buying that particular particular thing? I, I am not saying that there aren't ways that you can use network technology to circumvent that. So, for example, if you put it on its own separate you know VLAN, its own separate network, maybe, and then maybe just take a like an HDMI feed out of the multiplex signal. And put that into a separate IP encoder that then was on the internet. Now the only link between those two right. systems is, I mean, I can think of ways to kind of hack around it. But if I'm looking at what I'm going to put in my house or what I'm going to recommend to clients, I want to be able to defend that position. And yes, the access cameras are a little bit more. Uh, Unify is about $130 a camera. The access are about $300 a camera. So yeah, the, the and I think what, what Hike Vision and, and Armcrest and those, they're like... They're they're around a hundred bucks a camera, right? If you buy them individually, looks like ninety nine bucks yeah. for the Armcrest. So I, I'm I'm fine telling a customer spend thirty five dollars more to get a decent Unify camera, or spend a hundred and fifty twice the price if you want the camera that's going to last you for the next twenty years. Okay, I just I mean I can see it. It's just for the most part, anytime that I, I'm going to have a hard time. <clears throat> I guess from my perspective, if I've got a um, you know, as a homeowner, mm-hmm. I, I do get it. But then again, I lock everything down from a yeah. homeowner. If I've got a homeowner that's wanting to really go through and protect their, their house, or at least have, have more of a video, I want to have a hard time convincing them to go and spend $300 on a camera yep. when, you know, they're looking at me over here on the other side. So to me, 
But I do get where the mobile client would be would have issues and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I and, and again, it's not you're not. I mean, believe me, I had like this was an internal debate. Blood was shed, my friend. Like I. It's not lost on me that you can walk into Best Buy and buy a ring camera for a hundred and some bucks, right? And so, and that's what I'm up against. Whether or not I can, whether or not we all acknowledge that privacy concerns exist, at the end of the day, there's also something to be said about the fact that if I can only put four cameras on my property instead of eight because they were twice the price, I'm running a real risk that somebody is going to do some damage and I'm not going to be able to catch them because I didn't have cameras in place. That's a security risk as well. It's just a different security risk. And so I, I, I am not, you are not wrong in saying that there is tremendous value in buying inexpensive cameras and then either paying attention to network technology to mitigate those threats or just saying, you know what? If the Chinese government really wants access to, 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 to some sort of data metrics or whatever, we keep pretty good eyes on the firewall so we know what, you know, if there's any massive amount of data that's leaving, we will catch it. And if there's small little bits here and there, uh, you know, we'll do the best we can. And at the end of the day, nothing is foolproof. So if we're going to have smart devices on the network, we're going to deal with some of those security concerns. I get it. Well, I mean, you've got the—I will say—you've got like the federal government coming out now and saying the IoT devices need to be on their own network anyway. Mm-hmm. The person has to be conscious. So, yeah. I guess that's where I'm coming from: is that if you've got to go and be conscious about either or, mm-hmm. then to me, I would rather go through and be conscious about the one that's a little bit cheaper. Yes, you know, lock my network down and have the capability. And I guess I wanted to just go through and make the point that, <clears throat> you know. You don't have to get a $300, and I believe me, the last place that I worked at had access. They were great. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but the same functionality can be had for a different price. It's just, yes, you do have to be a little bit more you know, cautious about how am I going to go and do this? How am I going to punch this in? That kind of thing. So. Absolutely. Well, I agree with your point. Yeah, I'll tell you what I'll do, and it's a great discussion. I really appreciate you specifically for jumping in there on, you know, on the gun like that. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put some links into some of the articles that I read. They're a little dry, to be honest with you, but they they really they they detail what actually happened. So we're not type talking and hypotheticals. You can see the actual exploits that were found, Hike Vision's response, how that was all handled. Then you can make your own decision and say, yeah, that uh, that seems like there's there's something there. Or, you know what, that seems like an honest mistake. And that and all companies, all companies that make network devices have, from time to time, made poor decisions or didn't catch a security problem. And it went public and people blow that stuff out of proportion. That, at the end of the day, is a judgment call. That's not a technical thing. But what I can tell you, again, technical, just speaking technical stuff, we don't have any of those. We haven't had any of those concerns from people that watch very closely on their network with Ubiquity uh, or Access. And so I, when I'm comparing those two, it's just it's kind of hard. But I, uh, but I believe me, like I told you, it's not something that I hadn't considered. It's not something that I hadn't thought about because you're absolutely right. When you go on and you look at the the, the plethora of cameras that are available for dirt cheap prices and then you start looking at the actual quality of these things the picture quality from a hike vision camera is fantastic in fact i'll let you in on a little secret that i do own hike vision cameras they're just not ip cameras i actually bought a bunch of their analog cameras because they look so sharp the picture's great they're inexpensive they do a good job and with an ip or with a analog camera i don't really understand how you're going to uh you know compromise somebody's privacy so i'm pretty comfortable placing that inside of a client atmosphere and letting them and letting them and letting them roll and i've been very happy with the results i think they're great cameras 
Hey guys, like I said, every week we have way more show prep than we actually ever get to. If you want access to all of that, we give it away for you to free. All you have to do is go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you had a question about something I said, if you had a question about something you wanted to read more on, or you're like, what is he really talking about, about those hike vision cameras? Well, head over to podcast.asknoahshow. There you'll find all of the articles and references I used in the show. We'll continue next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.